Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Adrian Siegel. And you are a lot of things. You are a teacher, you are an artist, you run workshops. What else do you do? I spend a lot of time thinking and drawing and reading. I'd say those three things kind of take up most of my time, especially in, in this day and age of the shelter in place order, which is still happening in the Bay Area. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of time preparing for teaching, which requires thinking about how processes work, how to communicate a process to someone else and kind of guide them on their exploratory journey of figuring out what their voice is, either visual, sculptural, or personal. Lately, it's been a bit of um, just kind of focusing in on my own work and trying to, to have fun and make new things and sculptures and ideas that I haven't had much time to do when trying to balance it out with teaching, but the semester just ended. And then in, in, along with that, preparing to do a couple of workshops that will be coming up that will be online. So that's growing in a new direction for me. And then I've, I've more recently started writing a bit more about experience and knowledge and how data sculpture plays a role in transforming data into knowledge. Lovely. Okay. One of my big questions I always start with also is how did you even get into the, the creative industries? So, and I'm, when I say that, I mean all the way back to childhood. So were your parents creative? Did you have some great teacher? Like, how did you even start? My parents were not particularly visually creative. My mother's a ultrasound technician and my dad is an engineer and my grandfather was a civil engineer. So a lot of engineers on one side of my family probably had some influence on logical thinking. And I always gravitated towards art class when I was in high school and middle school. So it just felt like a natural place to, to go to. And I grew up in a university town in Boulder, Colorado, where CU Boulder is, is a pretty big part of the town and a fairly well-known university for science and math. And I just knew I didn't want to go to a normal university I had been working at a sports bar as a hostess when I was in high school, and a lot of my coworkers had gone to CU and had degrees in science or math or political science, you know, all these legit, you know, perceived to be legitimate degrees, and they were all working at a sports bar to pay their bills. So I kind of figured that if I was going to just work in restaurants to make money, I might as well study whatever I wanted to study because there wasn't going to be any consequences to that. I should, should spend the four years going to a university doing what I really wanted to do. And so I didn't really have any hesitation about going to an art school as opposed to, you know, a liberal arts college or, an, or a more standard university. And that's kind of how I ended up in art school. My dad was pretty supportive of that. And when I got to college for, for art school, I didn't really have a degree in mind. You know, the university I went to had glass blowing and 
all the different crafts. You could do ceramics as your major. You could do any of the design fields, graphic design, architecture, industrial design. And I ended up kind of falling into furniture design. And I think mainly because it's a field that sits kind of right in between a more strict design profession and a more abstract fine art field. So you you can get a degree in furniture design and really have a wide range of options with that kind of degree coming out of school about what you actually want to spend your day doing. And just to be clear, what, what school was this? Yeah, this is California College of of Art, I think is what they changed the name to. They changed it right when I was going to school. It used to be of of arts and crafts, but I think that that title wasn't very popular. So they switched it to California College of Arts and it's in San Francisco. So it's it's where I live now. It's why I moved here when I was 18. Yes, it wasn't very popular. I actually went to the San Francisco Art Institute. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's, it's a, that's a great school. I mean, CCA is great as well. They they're had, both I mean, great. Yeah. I love their campus down in the, down in the warehouse district down south. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. They're potentially going to be expanding it, but I'm not sure when. <laughs> well, no. they had, they had just opened that when I arrived. So I started at San Francisco Art Institute and the same year they just opened that, that uh, campus down in the south. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I mean, the Art Institute actually has a fantastic campus as well. They have the Diego Rivera paintings. and Yes, I know. I was the director of the, the gallery there. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, we're, Small we're, world. We're Hopefully it will continue to exist. There's talk that it might close. Yeah, I got that that email as well. But it's it sounds like when they announced they weren't going to continue operating, they got some some strong responses and some maybe some funding that will help them get through. Because I think it's about to be their hundred and fiftieth anniversary, right? That sounds about right. It's old school. It's old school. And CCA is where I I teach now. Okay, so I'm also a professor. I've been a professor in the United States and in the Middle East, and I'm now in Prague, and I'm even doing the online thing. And how do you feel about the sort of the state of art teaching these days? Just to be clear, hold on, let me set it up for you. I don't think it's doing a great job. I think that academia as a general whole, keep in mind, I don't know your your school, it teaches craftsmanship, it teaches concepts, it teaches lots of really great things. But what I feel like it is lacking is they're not preparing creative people for the real world. I would agree with that statement. And I'm not sure, that was one of the biggest complaints when I was in art school is when you you spend four years really you know, in my program specifically, it was a lot of technique, learning how to build things, which is a great education, but not really what you need to go to art school for. But, you know, you could be a journeyman carpenter and learn some of the same skills. But also, I think college fills, the university fills such a strange place for, for people. It's, it's exposure to the world. Oftentimes, I feel like what you learn in university is not what you think you're there for. You know, a lot of a lot of students will show up and just be like, all right, teach me this thing I'm supposed to know about to get the job when I'm done. And you end up 
a bunch of, I don't know, you kind of learn more about bureaucracy and how institutions work and how to work within an institution to get what you want out of it. <laughs> so I feel like part of college education is not even what you're studying. It's what you're learning by by being in an institution for four years and working with faculty and students. And then also who you who you meet when you're in there. I'm, I think most jobs after college come from a connection or your network you made while you're in school. And I, I would say that be, because I went to a school in the Bay Area and I've stayed here for the you know 15 years since I, it's like 12 years since I graduated, I've definitely stayed in contact with a lot of the people I went to school with. And that's also why I teach there because I was in the right place at the right time and they needed someone to cover a class and they knew I was here. So I think that's sort of a tangent, but I think there are a lot of the, the value in going to a university is not what you think you're going to get. On the other hand, you don't really need to go to art school to be an artist. A lot of being an artist is just self-discipline and figuring out how to, to stay, keep momentum, even though no one's saying there's a deadline <laughs> necessarily. And you, you can take workshops to learn new techniques. You can apprentice with someone if you want to learn a particular technique. You can hire a master cast person, you know, casting company if you need to translate something you've you've designed into another material that you're not familiar with. There's a lot of different ways to operate as an artist that absolutely do not require higher education to do so. But I think that by going to an art school, I definitely, it helped set me on that path. And the, the biggest thing that bothers me about academia today is how hard they push people to go to get a master's degree in art almost right after you get out of undergrad. And I think that's really, really kind of manipulative. If there's people who end up with, with 150,000, you know, US dollars in debt because they got a master's degree. How on earth are you going to be an independent artist when you're that deep in debt? That's like, that's, you're going to have to get a job. <laughs> like, oh yeah. I'm, I'm 20 years out of school and I'm still paying off my student loan. Oh man. Yeah. It sucks. But, uh, but I wouldn't be able to be the teacher that I am and I wouldn't have had the jobs that I had if I hadn't gotten that master's degree. But I do agree. Like, I mean, in this day and age, the only reason to get a master's degree is I'm going to be sort of catty about it is basically either to teach or with the full intention of just like making connections. So like, you know, if you wanted to be in a certain genre of work, so like you go to Yale master's program to be part of that club kind of thing, mm -hmm. kind of that idea. So like either, you know, intentionally creating connections and, and tribes or teaching but regardless outside of those two there's really no need for it like need for it yeah yeah and i often hear you know the oh i want to teach someday so i'll go get my master's degree now argument and the reality of it is i think for all of the people who get 
master's degrees in art, only 1% of them will ever teach at a college level. <laughs> I think it was like some crazy statistic like that. So it's, it's kind of a false promise. Like, yes, I have been told directly that if I, because I don't have a master's degree, if I had a master's degree, I would be able to teach at a particular institution that I cannot right now. And that's okay with me. I don't want to teach all the time. I'm able to teach at CCA and I also teach at USF and I don't want to teach all the time. So a couple classes every semester, every other semester, even better, is plenty for me. I get the fulfillment of engaging with students and staying connected and honing my skills at teaching and, and improving the classes I do teach and developing new curriculum, but it doesn't take over my whole life. And I've, I've seen so many faculty that teach even three classes a semester. That's, that's you know, not even really full time, but teaching just takes so much time that you just don't have enough time to really push your own practice forward. And I'm not ready to sacrifice my own work to teach yet. Your work, uh, you talk about like data sculptures and all this kind of stuff. Now, when I first saw your work, I didn't know anything about that. And I w was really interested in the fact that you have beautiful craftsmanship. I love, the, you know, your techniques are really stunning visually. And then once you get into them, there's there each of your pieces that I saw had sort of these deeper, more profound meanings. I've also watched some videos of you online as well. Um, so you choose to do this work based, you know, based on data and technical stuff, and then you turn them into these organic sort of uh, fluid kind of feelings uh, that become very expressive in a very different way. How did you come to that idea of like taking sort of almost scientific things and make them into very organic and visceral things? Yeah, I just first want to say I really appreciate that you didn't approach, you don't see the work singularly from the perspective of data because I work really hard to make sure that the artwork is firing on multiple levels and I don't actually describe my work as data sculpture it doesn't <laughs> no it's fine it's it, it is out in the world that way it's also it's been called a lot of different things there's an element of environmentalism but i never describe the work as environmental like environmentally focused but, you know i kind of overlap in the world of furniture design and and studio furniture craftsmanship, but I also don't ever describe the work as furniture, furniture related. So I like that there's a lot of different angles by which people, audience, viewers can become interested in the work and then learn about another feature of the work that they maybe weren't initially attracted to or didn't initially see. And that's really important to me because I'm trying to to bridge these gaps between fields in a way. You know, like I love woodworking and I love working in a shop all day, but if I just did woodworking without any concept or research or or you know, some of the scientific information I incorporate into the work, I think I would be a little bit bored. 
And in the, in the same way, I love data as a conceptual resource to pull into artwork. But if I was just a data scientist or a data visualization you know, designer, I would be really bored too. So I like that it's really bridging gaps between fields because I feel like just in general, we've become so specialized in fields that it's even hard to have a conversation with someone from another field and understand really what they're studying or what their expertise is. Or so that part is really important to me. And I, I to kind of get to where data started being pulled into my work is actually back in school. My final year at university is really mainly focused on one full year of developing a body of work as a thesis project that has to have some research component to it. And the the previous three years I had spent at school was wonderful in that I was learning how to build things. I was learning how, how wood as a material works, also how to incorporate wood with other materials to build forms. So sometimes, you know, how do you bend metal? How do you weld metal? How do you use wood and metal together? How do you build structures that have both or pushing some of just the, the physical limitations of raw materials and how to use them as building materials was great. But when I got to my final year, I, it was this first opportunity I had to really get, get into ideas that I was interested in and not just I want to build a desk that has a secret drawer that's at the spot that you can like pull it at, you know, like something functional. It wasn't, honestly, functional furniture just wasn't interesting enough to me to want to spend my life doing furniture design. And so I ended up doing a bunch of research for my thesis project that kind of started in visual illusions and kind of how perception, how our, our perception can be tricked through patterns. And that kind of led to codes. I read a whole book about code machines, you know, how credit card numbers are validated or not based on a bunch of mathematical equations. It get really kind of into these other arenas. And then I ended up discovering the work of Edward Tufte, who kind of was a graphic design guru who really pioneered the contemporary-ish ideas about data visualization. So he really brought it to the forefront as a graphic, like visual graphics, how data can be visually displayed for people to understand as a language. I just heard an entire podcast on the history of the barcode. Oh, it's quite a fascinating idea. I had no idea how the barcode actually worked, but it was really very enlightening. I'd love to hear that. You should share that link with me. <laughs> sure. Happy to. <laughs> Who knows what it could be to. Yeah, stuff like that is just fascinating. So it, ends up, it ended up just becoming the focus of, of this work I did in my thesis piece, which started actually with a personal, really personal experience in the landscape. I went to, you're familiar with San Francisco. Have you been to the Sutro Bathhouse? I have. I yeah. actually did a, a series of photos there. It's such a cool site. It is. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I, I don't know, even know what I went there for. I think I just went there for like a, to see, see what it was. And I, I, we, we went out there just to get stoned. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably something like that. It's such a, it's such a beautiful site. And I think two things really struck me about going there. One was that it was this 
I, I later learned about the history of the sutro baths and how they were these harnessing the tides of the ocean to build these series of pools in this crazy, I think at the time it was the largest indoor swimming pool. It was built at the very end of the 1800s, I think 1896. And all the pools were recirculated ocean tides. So they were all salt water and it was such a cool history to it. And then if you go there now, it's really just like, you can see sort of the ruins, just like the edges of some of the pools. And you can see the there's like this cave with that kind of really cool hole in it where there's like when the ocean kind of comes up, it it blows air like out the cave. And it's a really weird, very full body experience. And I just ha- kind of had this really profound experience there just realizing like how cool it was that the ocean is just slowly taking back these ruins. And I think that was really meaningful for me, A, because in in the U.S. and in California in particular, you very rarely see ruins of anything. You know, land here is so expensive. And as soon as something becomes slightly unfashionable, like a building, they'll just knock it down and build something new immediately. (laughs) So you don't have a strong history of site and, and like how people used to live. And also like that particular site is a great example of humans harnessing the power of nature for recreational purposes. So the tides kind of slowly taking these ruins back really hit me. And I started just thinking about how tide patterns work, how, you know, if you're not familiar with them, you just stand at the edge of the ocean. The the tides could be at any given level at any given time. But if you start to look into the science behind it, you know, it's based on the moon cycle and there's neap tides and spring tides. And it it's all based on the gravitational pull between the earth and the moon and the sun and the positions of those three entities at any given time. And it just, it was super cool. And I ended up finding a site that had an archive of tide data for San Francisco. And that's kind of where I started digging into scientific data and how to use it in work sculpturally. Right. And you ended up making these uh, steel sculptures out of that project. Yeah, steel and wood. So the the I took the tide charts and actually bent them, physically bent them in steel. One full month of tide charts for San Francisco Bay. And then the framework that like holds those pieces up is actually made out of wood. So it was kind of, I think I was in a place where I was in a furniture design program. And I was like, I should probably make something that resembles furniture. And so it sort of became a coffee table sized proportioned thing. And I used a really nice species, you know, I used walnut for the frame and it has some areas of like a flat top, but it's not really a table. (laughs) Don't, whoever buys it, they should not be using it as a table. It's a piece of art. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I went, (laughs) I did, I do enjoy walking the line between, you know, people, I think as humans, we want to categorize things. We want to be like, oh, it's a coffee cup. Oh, it's used for this. And I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with art because they don't know how to categorize it. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with just a, I mean, this doesn't really happen anymore, but just like a random person you meet and it's like, oh, what do you do? I'm an artist. Oh, are you a painter? You know, that's always the way it goes because they they understand what a painter is. You paint pictures and you hang them on a wall. 
and they all think we're poor as well. So you know, I, 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 they get they, they think I'm a painter. They think I'm poor, and they think I'm slightly mentally unstable in some way, and possibly an alcoholic or a drug addict. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get all of that all the time. But you brought up a good topic that actually was something I wanted to ask you about, which is being categorized. So, like, I'm a photographer, so of course I'm everybody assumes that I can take pictures of anything. So people are always like, Hey, you would take pictures of my wedding. Could you take pictures of my wedding? And it, and it drives me nuts, <laughs> but you uh, are, a, you work three dimensionally, you work in sculptural works generally, but you also seem to change mediums. And I'm wondering how easy is that? Because of course I come from a background of photography. Now photography, everybody sort of pigeonholes photographers into a certain category but you seem to be sort of jumping categories because you're while you're doing three-dimensional work you're working with beads and steel and wood and glass and all kinds of different mediums and how easy is it to sort of work in different mediums not for you but like as far as being accepted so like when you apply for something or you propose something and it's in a new medium that you've never used before do you get good receptions on that it is challenging to switch media between projects. I think the biggest realization I've had more recently is that I don't know why this is part of the expectation of artists, but they want the art field wants to see continuity in the kind of work you make Correct. and it's harder to see continuity when you're making a piece in glass and then you switch to clay and then you switch to, you know, ice or whatever, you know. And uh, I had a curator once explain kind of her perspective to me that I found really helpful. She broke it down into kind of like there's two types of artists. There are the badgers and the foxes. <laughs> and the badgers are the ones that kind of burrow down and just work in their medium and they do endless variations of their medium. So like if I was really after school, I just stuck to wood sculpture and just kept making wood sculpture for from then until now, I'd have a really big body of work that was very well received by the craft you know, world. But I probably would have been bored ultimately. I know I kind of got bored after I did the third or fourth sculpted plywood piece and the foxes to continue the analogy are the ones who just jump around and, and try all different sorts of stuff and I I kind of ended up taking that route because the the concept behind the work I make is so important to what the piece becomes I don't choose what material I'm going to use until the concept is well established because the concept drives what material I use. So like an example would be, I ended up doing a piece about glaciers based on a residency I did in Alaska. And the form I designed, I carved a positive piece, a sculpture in plywood. But the idea of glaciers and their ephemerality and the qualities of ice, both temperature, like transparency, like all of the physical properties and qualities of a glacier don't translate into plywood as a material at all. So it doesn't make any sense for me to force and impose 
a material I might be really good at working with onto an idea that it doesn't resonate with. So I ended up for that particular piece doing a two-part mold. So I did a silicone layer over the plywood positive and then did a plaster kind of two-part mother mold around that and took the plywood out but had the negative space kind of describing the process of casting here have the negative space in the silicone mold to then cast ice into. And that piece ended up being kind of documented as a time-lapse video showing the glacier sculpture melting over the course of a day. So it's captured in about, I think, a minute of video. And people don't like that necessarily because they're like, you know, I had one woman say like, well, you can't buy that. So is that art? <laughs> you know? Oh, that doesn't bother me so much. But <laughs> it, it's the point of the the thing that you, you're addressing, which is that it sounds like you are more focused on the strong concept. And so like, while let's say like, you know, a painter would be defined by the fact that they are a painter and they paint whatever subject sort of sparks their fancy. You're more focused on trying to create a career based on the strength of your ideas and your concepts and then utilizing whatever medium is necessary to express that idea. Yes, I would say yes. And I would also say it's not always as clean as that. Sometimes, sometimes it's about an opportunity. You know, like I have a bunch of ideas of concepts I'd like to explore, but sometimes a good opportunity pops up in front of you that allows you to try a new material. So I did a residency at a glass casting facility a couple years ago, and it was a good opportunity to propose an idea for a piece that would make sense in glass. And so sometimes it's, it's, you have this backlog of ideas and you're just waiting for the right opportunity to propose that piece. And once, once somebody says yes, then you can figure out, oh, who do I hire to help me make that if I don't have the skills? Or where can I go to learn the skills to be able to do that? You're just teeing me up with like the best next topics because you've done a number of residencies and have you done any grants? Have you received any grants? I've had received a few small ones for like various projects. Fair enough. Yeah, that's good. I'm wondering like how important is it for the text? Because in some ways it kind of drives me nuts as sort of a purist in the visual arts that while I have to make beautiful products or outcomes of my my artistic expression i also need we also need to be able to eloquently write text to explain it as well these days specifically in grants and residency applications so how have you learned or like what have you learned about how to do that successfully because you seem to have done it successfully yeah, I feel like I'm getting better. <laughs> I don't, I've always been the kind of person who doesn't like writing because I, like you, am a visual artist and I want the work to speak for itself. And it drives me nuts when you go to an art exhibition and there's like four paragraphs of texts on the wall to explain what the person's doing. And it's supplementing the work in a way that the work isn't telling its own story. And I don't ever want to do that. So 
I, I know that writing is extremely necessary. I've worked really hard to get better at it, but I also know it's just not my first choice. And I have also recognized that sometimes writing about the work can really help the work be better too. So I've actually tr started making my students write more about their work, <laughs> uh, even though they don't really want to do it. But I think it is one of those skills that is absolutely necessary. In terms of grant, and I've done a lot more proposal writing than grant writing. I just, I, I value how you can think through and problem solve a project before you ever start working on it. To a point, you can only think through it so far before you like actually working a material. But I end up getting really frustrated when it feels like I'm spending more of my time writing proposals, talking about what I would do if someone selected my project idea, than I spend actually making work. That's where I start to just be like, fuck this. <laughs> I don't want to write anymore. And it, it becomes a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of my point is, is that I feel like the institution of the art world is pushing visual artists to spend more time doing the text and doing the applications and doing the writings and the, all this stuff versus spending time in the studio, which I feel like is sort of a bad direction. I really wonder why that is, because historically, it's really the job of curators to put the work in context beyond the work itself. And the other thing that really bothers me about the art world pushing, pushing art speak, I try really hard to write about my work in ways that do not make it inaccessible to general people. You don't have to have a degree in art history to read an artist statement and understand <laughs> what the person's trying to do. And I think that the art world really, particularly, this may be like a false critique because I don't have a master's degree, but my sense is that most people who have gone through a master's program start to write about their work in a less accessible way because they're using art speak. And it's one of the things that really bothers me about higher education and the agenda they're pushing about making art seem it's less accessible. My undergraduate program, my pro I remember one of my professors actually told us to start our artist statements with a Latin phrase. <laughs> That's like all of the artist statements started with a Latin phrase? That's what he, he encouraged every student to begin all of their artist statements with Latin phrases. Yikes. Yeah, I believe that model is a bit outdated at this point. I mean, keep in mind, this was, he taught me this 30 years ago and he was in school 30 years before that. So it's a, that's a bit of an outdated model. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's why I'm here. I mean, keep in mind the, the podcast is called the wise fool because certain things I'm very knowledgeable about and certain things I'm an absolute idiot about. One of the things I'm an absolute idiot about is how to effectively and eloquently write about visual art. Now, now I do appreciate your insight on curators and how they should be the ones sort of putting things into context because 
when I moved to Europe from like in America, I find that curators are a bit more difficult to find and get connected with. In Europe, curators are much more available and accessible. Um, and maybe there just are too many of them, but they are more willing to be of assistance with the, things like writing text for artists. Mm. That would be nice. <laughs> I recently had a curator come by and actually write, end up writing some text for me. And it was fabulous. It was nothing about what I, you know, I gave him my whole spiel. I even gave him my rough draft on what I thought my artwork was about. And he totally changed it and gave it a whole new thing. And I love his perspective and I'm using it as my new artist statement because I, I just don't feel it's my job to interpret it i believe that is the job of the curator or the gallerist or whoever but there it's not the artist's job to also you know a they make the beautiful works or the whatever it doesn't have to be beautiful but like they make the the artwork and then also explain it we're not authors we're not writers we that's not what we were trained in and so like i find it difficult but unfortunately it's kind of important these days. So we sort of have to just hunker down and learn to just suck it up and do it. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it wouldn't be so bad if it was just the, <laughs> the making of the artwork and then the writing a few sentences about it. But it's also the photographing it and the website and the managing your taxes and like like keeping applying contracts. for things, contracts, lawyers, like it's, it is its own business, but you're doing it. Like I do all of that myself and it's really detracts from the time I can spend making work. I wish there was better support for that kind of stuff. And I've run into a few organizations that say, oh yeah, we support artists in doing this kind of stuff. And then I go and I actually like ask for their help. And then they're like, yeah, that'll be $200. <laughs> I'm like, well, if you're going to be two, why don't I just pay a fucking lawyer the $200? Like, why am I paying you? Like it, or the, the other one I run into is, uh, there are again, some organizations that do support this kind of way. And they often will say, oh, well, we only support people under the age of 35 or, oh, we only support people who have this income and you exceed that income or whatever. Like there's always some minutia of some criteria that for, for some reason, I always seem to fall out of their realm of responsibility. Mm, that would be frustrating. It is very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I, I see there's, there's little grants you can apply for to get you know, a little bit of money to do a, a website for you or to get professional development training or help. I mean, I think this kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions is, you know, art school does not prepare students for what it means to, to run your own business in this, not, you know, not at all. Yeah. No. And I've even proposed these classes at three universities and they've all said, no, they said, really? No. They didn't, well, because curriculums at universities only have a certain amount of time with the students, literally, like they only, you know, so many credit hours before graduation and they feel that other things are more important and that this is not important. And I think that that's doing a huge disservice to the arts industry as a whole, because a lot of these very talented students end up walking out of school with no skills about how to transition and take these 
crafts and skills and concepts that they've you know mastered in their abilities and make them into a way to earn a living yeah and i would say that's one of the biggest critiques of of the school i went to from other students that are there and and went there and you know they i i don't know exactly what the school has done internally to address that i know it's they sometimes offer professional practices classes where they talk about so you know how to do a website you know that kind of thing but yeah but but all of that is actually like the fundamentals like you, everybody needs that that's not the stuff they need to learn because yeah. that's the the basics it's the things like contracts it's you know if you're gonna if you're gonna get a commission like you know reading over the contract and making sure that you're budgeting your time and your money correctly and and effectively so that you don't end up getting screwed I mean, there's, and then of course there's intellectual property laws and all kinds of other things that we all should be much more knowledgeable about that we're not. Yeah. I feel like art schools should really just have one foundation class that covers, you know, it's, it's not going to be fun, but it's necessary. Indeed. All right. Let's go back a step though. Let's get off our little soapbox here. And, uh, I want to hear a little bit about some of your experiences at residencies, because my my problem with residencies, don't get me wrong, I love residencies. I look forward to doing many residencies in my career. So anybody who's listening, I'd love to do a residency. But <laughs> the issue I have with it is, is that they ask us to propose something that we might do sometime in the future if we have the money, if we get the grant, if we get the, you know, if, 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 if. And I find it very difficult to write that kind of thing. So like, how did you figure out a way to sort of, you know, propose an idea that you're going to do in the future that you don't know how, what's going to be and how it's going to look. It's totally different by residencies. The good ones don't ask you to do that. <laughs> okay. So I've just been applying for crappy residencies. Well, no, no, no. I think it's become much more commonplace for residencies to be like tell us what you would do if you were selected and <laughs> some, the really annoying ones will even have a question about tell us why we are the only organization that you can do this project at or why now is the time in your career that you need to have this particular opportunity uh, I hate those. I absolutely hate those because what I want from a residency is time, space, and potentially money. That's what I want. That's all I want. Why do they, I don't like how they, they each seem to have like their own little thing. Like there are some residencies only for young artists, some residencies only for women artists, some residencies that are only for ecologically minded artists. And like they have these little like focused criteria and categories that I wish that they wouldn't have. But I guess it all goes back to who's funding it and what their mission statement is. Yeah, on the back end, I don't know what requirements they're being held to. But I do agree that a good number of residencies have an agenda. And, and the other thing that some of them ask that I also try to avoid is they, they expect their residents to be to be public programmers. They're like, okay, when you're here, you're going to do a talk, you're going to do a workshop, and you're going to advise us on this, this, and this to make our programming and community engagement better. And that's 
not what a residency is. That's a job. That's, that's, that means you need to hire someone to do public programming and not have a residency. The better residencies, I would say, are the ones where there may be a theme. And I've definitely had that work for me. If there's a theme or a, a clear interest in some scientific focus or some environmental focus, if I know that there's some overlap in the concepts behind my work and what the residency is looking for, I know that it's a pretty good chance I'll get it. Oh yeah. You tick all the boxes for current residencies right now. Well, not all of them. Not all of them. There's definitely a few. Oh yeah. There are a large number of ones that definitely, <laughs> you know, science, data, ecology, these mm -hmm. kinds of things like, oh, there's so many of those. Yeah. Climate change, a big focus right now. And Absolutely. It's, it's great that they're focusing on this stuff, but you're right. It does leave out a lot of people. And, and then that puts artists in a really weird place where they're like, okay, well, if I want to do this opportunity, do I have to adjust my practice to fit it? Like, how do I write about my work that makes it seem more appealing to that particular thing. And I think that's just an area none of us should go. Like it should either fit or it shouldn't fit. And I've, I've been lucky in that I've done a lot of different residencies. Each one has had its own challenges, but overall I've had pretty good experiences. But it is, it is really hard to be like, if you select me, then I will do this. And oftentimes they say, we know this opportunity isn't for another year. So you don't have to stick to your proposal. But it's like, well, then why are you asking me to write something? Why can't we just go based on my work? If you like my work, then select me or don't. But don't make me do all this extra work in which I could be focusing time in a more productive way to make new work. It, it's it's become a little bit weird. I don't know how residency programs choose what they require people to write to apply. That's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I find it to be a, just a soul-sucking, time-consuming, tedious thing because you're trying to write something that is true to yourself while also answering their needs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't, do they even really read all of, <laughs> I would be so angry if they didn't read all of that because I put like, I just finished a grant recently that took me three weeks to write. Oh God. Yeah. I think we got to just step up, you know, back from that cliff because it's just, it's too much of a burden and it costs like I've had, I prefer the model. I've, I've applied for a few public art pieces recently and I like that model a bit more especially when they do an RFQ a request for qualifications because that literally is send us six images of your work M most of the time this is what it is send us your work a letter of intent as to you know say something about your experience with public art managing budgets and why you think you're a good fit for this particular project and then like an artist statement and that's it and from that initial pool of qualified artists they will choose four finalists and then the ones that know what they're doing will then pay those finalists to do a full proposal so you're doing a lot of work but you're at least getting some nominal fee for the work that you're doing if you're selected. And if you're not selected, at least all you did was write a letter of intent and the rest of it was there. Like that should be how it works because in my mind, residencies and grants, they probably 
first sort through the visual work and say, we don't want any of those people. And they don't even read. If they don't like your visual work, they probably don't even read what you wrote. Wouldn't that be great where they would do like a tiered grant, like residency or granting where like you could submit just images and maybe like a little art, a short artist statement, 250 words or less, something easy, something we all have pre-prepared that we could just easily submit as like a first round before they make us do any additional work. That would be fantastic. And why not even flip it the other way? Like where there's just a platform that connects, like artists can upload their work to, and then opportunities can then go to that and select from those artists and then invite you to propose if it seems like a good fit. Like why not put, that would just save everyone so much time because they would get artwork proposals from people they probably would choose from that they want. The open application process is just, I think it's really important to have open applications because for emerging artists that don't have a lot of work, that can give them the in to be able to to have some substantial work made that they might not make if they're only invited. But if there was just a good number of artists that could be invited or some platform where you didn't have to apply for every single thing and write a little different letter for every single thing, it would just make it a little bit better. Okay, that just touched on my real pet peeve. Okay, I have two pet peeves about the entire arts industry regarding these things. First of all, my one, sorry, I'm going to get on my soapbox again. That's but fine. The, I don't like how there's different vocabulary for the same thing. So like if you're in Washington, D.C. and you apply for a grant, let's say a, I use mobility grants as an example. So like you, you apply for a mobility grant, but then you go to like California and they, they term it something else. It's a travel grant or something like this. And so like just even the most fundamental of terminology and vernacular is not consistent because then when you come to Europe, of course, not only in Europe are they using different you know, travel grants versus mobility grants, but they're also even putting out their grant calls in different languages. So you need to be able to like search on Google in different languages to even find these available things. So like just getting some consistent vernacular would be so helpful to artists. Yeah. Maybe they just need an organization that really kind of comes together and says, look, we'll be the platform, submit everything, and we just you can translate it into each language. We need a United Nations for the arts. That's <laughs> what we need. That sounds like a good idea. Not that the United Nations is actually a good organization, but in theory it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I got to say, I, I like that it's nice that Europe has so much different cultural like representation and I've been applying for more residencies over there because I want to spend more time over there and just get a little bit out of this crazy country and and that's it it's been extremely beautiful to see all the different ways that different residencies and opportunities are set up there versus here oh they're phenomenal over here and I highly recommend for you Scandinavian region Tons of funding, lots of resources. Holy crap, it's an amazing area. Like all of it. Iceland, Norway, Sweden, the whole gang. Like freaking amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I did one in Ireland last year and I just, I loved it. I had such a great time. It's pretty pathetic in the States, I gotta say. we There's just, 
almost no funding. And every, you know, particularly with the COVID thing, there was certain grants that went up right away because they knew the artists were going to get hit really hard. And it was like the, the two days after the call went up, it would be like, we've received as many applications as we can review. We'll let you know if there's ever any more funding. Like, uh, yeah, I saw that. And I, by the time I saw that the, the, uh, they were available, they'd already said they'd run out of money. Yeah. And, and then I even looked into them just to see like, well, if they do come back available, would I be eligible? turns out I'm not eligible. Yeah. Cause like they, they, again, they put this like random criteria saying like, oh, you have to have X amount of, like you had to have uh, X amount of income based on whatever, whatever. And you had to sh you know, be able to show a loss of income somehow. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, how can I, I'm an artist. How can I quantify a loss of a potential sale or a commission or a, or a resident or a grant or whatever? Like, come on. It's really hard to quantify. Yeah. I mean, the best, the best opportunities are the no strings attached. They just <sighs> acknowledge that it's hard to be an artist. You know, there's one that's not very well known in America called the Americans for the Arts. They give out millions of dollars every year in $50,000 chunks to different artists they select. It's invite only. So it's kind of, you can't like apply or anything, but no strings attached. Like I have a friend who got that and she was able to buy a house to like secure a place to live and to have a studio there because she got this no strings attached grant. And it's just, she just needed an influx of cash to put down a down payment. And that is so meaningful. I, artists aren't going to like get a chunk of change and go buy a new car. Like they're not going to blow it in the same way that someone who isn't working tirelessly and passionately for something they love with almost like very little financial return from it. They're not just going to go blow that. They're going to put it where it counts. And if you've ever looked into, this isn't art specific, but the MacArthur Genius Award, if you've ever looked at some articles where they, they analyze how people have used the funds for that, it's, it shows <laughs> that people who are working and dedicated to something they love, they're going to put that money where it matters and they're going to, continue to feed new projects with it they're not gonna like just blow it so why why require them to track all their expenses and turn in a report that proves that they spent it in a way that you think is valuable uh, don't don't even start me on all the like if you do get a grant or some sort of funding how much paperwork you then have to do to prove and quantify all of the results that you did it's ridiculous yeah, that's kind of I've I've kind of stayed away from grants because of that. And it's maybe it's stupid. I should probably like, you know, all opportunities are good, but it's just if it's if it's more work, if it takes away and and makes me down on making art at all, like which happens if it's too much work and just feels like soul sucking, I just don't do it because it's not worth it. <laughs> we all got to choose where it's where the the hard line is on that. Mm, yes, it is hard. You don't want to lose your passion because the logistics get too difficult. Sorry, I'm just crying a little on the inside. <laughs> it's it's good to get that frustration out. Yeah, it's it's a funky system. It's a funky system. That's a very polite way of explaining it. Mm. I noticed some of your most recent work. You were doing mandalas. 
Is that right? Yeah. Those were part of a project through the University of Lethbridge in Canada. They partnered with wheat scientists studying wheat pathogens. And I struggled so hard with that project and ended up really, actually, I really like the work that came out of it. But it's, again, it's one of those things where it's like, it doesn't look like my other work. It's not actually really sculpture. It is data related. There's sort of these graphic narratives explaining different stories about wheat throughout history. And I, I think the reason the mandala kind of came out of that was kind of self-referential in that I struggled with how to translate this, this complicated genetic wheat data into something meaningful. And that felt sort of internally chaotic. And mandalas are, are sort of these geometric forms that can help you find centered, you know, like can help ground you and center you and create something organized out of chaos. So it's sort of this personal expression of feeling chaotic personally, but then also kind of a play on science and religion and how we've shifted from relying on divine intervention to avoid wheat pathogens or agricultural disease, you know, during the Roman era to now like using genetic modification and CRISPR and gene editing to avoid pathogens for, for agriculture. It's, it's a big shift. So I just kind of thought that tying those things together in this mandala form would, I guess, tie it together. <laughs> well, I, I just connected with it because my father's a priest. So oh, minister, reverend, whatever word you want to use to it. Wow. Interesting. And he, he also paints religious icons for a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Yes, he's a very eclectic gentleman. Aren't we all? We, just, we can fire at many different levels. I noticed on your website that you run workshops at Anderson Ranch and many other places throughout the United States. How did you get into running workshops? And then how did you sort of expand it? Because like, to a certain extent, getting that first workshop is hard in and of itself. But then how do you sort of expand to offering additional workshops in different locations? That's a great question. There's a bunch of, there's kind of a small handful of craft-based art. Not They're not art schools, but they're workshop centers. Anderson Penland Ranch. is a fabulous school. Yeah, Penland's a great school. There's one called Haystack in Maine. There's Aramont. There's like Pilchuck is mainly a glass one in um, Washington State. There's just a handful of these sites that you can go to. And what's really, really wonderful about them is not everyone wants to go to a full degree-seeking art school program. But these workshops take place in the summer. They're usually one or two weeks. They're taught by faculty from across the United States and the world, sometimes international faculty come. And it's the opportunity for someone who wants to learn a new skill, a new technique, but also to connect to someone they've always wanted to learn from who they can't move and take a full semester class from. So the workshop situation at these kinds of centers is really wonderful. A number of them also do residency programs and other kinds of artist support networks. And I've gone to Anderson Ranch for a time. I was going a lot because 
I grew up in Colorado, so my family's still there. So it was really easy for me to fly to Colorado, see my family, and then go to the mountains to take a workshop for a week or two and learn a new skill and just have some some creative motivation over the summer in between semesters or in between college years. So that was how I kind of started just becoming familiar with that community, made a lot of good friends, and then did the residency there a few years ago, and then they just invited me back to teach a workshop for this summer. I was also slated to teach at Penland, and both of those got canceled because we can't fly <laughs> around the country anymore. But the one at Anderson Ranch, I'm actually switching to an online class that I'm really excited about. It's a process I've used personally called photogrammetry, where you create a digital version of a physical object using software. It's kind of like a quick and easy way to model something in a computer without having to model it from scratch. And I'll be teaching that workshop and it's great because you get to connect to those institutions and they're really, really supportive of artists. Like if there's one saving kind of grace for places you can go to just feel like there's a lot of other people who care about art and are interested in working all night in a workshop just to like, do some new weird thing, they're the place to go to get that feeling and that community. I actually did a, res, a not a residency, I did a workshop at Anderson Ranch when I was in graduate school. Oh, and cool. I, I, I remember staying in the, the studio probably 20 to 22 hours a day, just working as hard as I could, as long as I could but to get as much out of that experience as possible. Yeah. Well, and they feed you. So it includes food. So you don't have to worry about cooking or cleaning dishes. And Anderson Ranch is in such a beautiful place. It's just a really refreshing, inspiring environment to be in. Yeah, it was funny. It uh, at the end of it, actually, I ended up breaking my hand on the last day. So you know, oh no, it it was stupid. We at the end of it, we all played volleyball together, and somebody kicked my hand and ended up breaking my hand. So oh my god, I didn't. I mean, I've played volleyball there, but I've never seen anybody get injured from it. Oh yeah, I did long time ago. This is twenty years ago now. You survived. Good work. Oh, it's yeah. It was, it was a very funny story in the long run, but. Anyways, the, the, but the thing is, is like, okay, so what I'm picturing is, is let's say somebody's listening to this podcast and they want to run workshops. So like, how do you even, did you, did, did you end up getting these additional workshops? So like you started at Anderson Ranch and then now you're at Penland and hey, hey, Haystack. Haystack. Um, how did you get the, was it through your network or did you like submit a, a, you know, an offer of, Hey, I can run this workshop for you all. Like, how did it work? I know that Penland has an official application process. If you want to propose a workshop to teach there, you write up a kind of a short description and what you would cover. And if it's one or two weeks, so they have an application process you can do. I don't know if Anderson Ranch or Haystack or the other ones do, Generally speaking, I'd say it's through a network. So there's always a chance that writing a proposal and cold emailing them will work. But I'd say that more likely, just the more people you know, the more you, you've gone there. I, I assisted workshops at Penland twice, three times before teaching there. So the longer history you have of engaging with that institution, meeting the people who who curate the workshops and showing your work there. So when you assist 
a workshop at Penland, you also give a presentation of your work that can really help, you know, kind of get on their radar. So those are those are kind of the, the means by which I'd recommend. I just I feel like I've had a long enough history of friends from school who ended up doing the residency at Penland, who then, you know, they teach a workshop, they recommend you. So I think most of those organizations have a survey at the end of the workshops. And that's when people can be proposed to teach, you know, like they'll ask, who would you want to take a workshop with here in the future? And then they'll get a list of people of potential invites. So then they can invite you if enough people are like, I would really love to take a workshop with this person. So there's a number of ways, but yeah, definitely having a good network and connections to, to people who've been, been there and go there regularly or work there a really good way to do it. All right. Any last little advice you'd like to give some young artists trying to sort of elevate their careers? I would say the best advice is just to keep your living expenses as low as possible so that you have as much freedom in how you spend your time as possible. Yeah. Because you can't do a residency if you've got a job job because you can't take time off to leave, right? So just the nature of choosing how you spend your time gives you a lot of freedom in choosing to be an artist, even if it's not paying you immediately, right? Like most artwork you do is not going to pay you until it gets to the show and it sells or until the proposal, you know, the 10th proposal you write is selected. So you've just got to make sure that you can float yourself until the thing comes through. And you can't do that if your rent is $3,000 a month. $3,000 a month is insane here in Prague. So yeah, that would be ridiculous. The standard in San Francisco. I don't think there's many artists moving here. I'm kind of sad about that. But there's other places in the U.S. where it's still like reasonable to, to survive and live on a low income. Yeah, see, I'm... I'm- yeah, I'm now 46 and I'm get coming to the point where I believe that uh, leaving the city is probably going to be more beneficial than staying too close. It's such a hard pull because you want to be close to culture. Absolutely. But you also don't want to spend an arm and a leg to live there. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the big challenges. And, of course, there's always issues as soon as a bunch of artists move in, it becomes a cool place to live and then the rent goes up. <laughs> Yes, that's the story of San Francisco. We're constantly moving around. Yeah, I'm lucky I've got in here and I have rent control. But there's, yeah, it's not an easy market to to start up a business in. But if you can keep your monthly expenses low, it just really frees up the time that you can focus on your work. And that's honestly, like, that's the most important thing. If you can't make work, if you're getting frustrated about the proposals or the thing not working out or being rejected again, like, you're just going to get disgruntled and be unhappy. So you just got to brush it off and just focus on what matters. And that's making the work that you want to make. Fabulous way to end this. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was really nice talking to you. Mm -hmm.